You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Great to see you all. Uh, We are again in our confession this morning. We are in chapter 24. Uh, I don't know. I don't see any hymnals hanging around up here. If you don't have a copy, uh, there's one back here. Mark Van Drunen has a copy of the hymnal. Uh, Does anybody need another copy of the confession? I should have, I should have beforehand bought like 20 little pamphlet versions of this to pass out during class every week. Um, But did not think about that. So I'm on, it's on you to try to find a copy of the text. And as you know, sometimes we read through it quickly, and I do depend on you having a copy to be able to uh, process and to, to read this. So um, if you have a copy of the confession, or if you don't have one, I encourage you to get one and you can bring it uh, in future weeks, um, or pull it up on your phone or something of the sort. We are on chapter 24 this morning. We are on the topic of marriage and divorce. Marriage and divorce, important and big topics. Let's begin with our resources as we always hit, always the same general ones. And marriage and divorce, a couple resources I want to give you. And we're dealing with more of the theology of marriage and divorce and the practice um, of when, who can be married, when people can be divorced. We're not dealing with um, how to have a great marriage seminar. It's not kind of what this morning is, unfortunately. Um, so we're dealing more with the nitty gritty, the, the, the nuts and bolts, not, um, not more the, the, the actual practice of marriage. Uh, so as we think of marriage and divorce, a couple resources. One is John Murray wrote what's become a classic treatment on divorce. Um, it's a, I don't know, maybe 100, 120 page large pamphlet. Um, recommend that. The PCA has put together a great study committee report, report of the ad interim committee. Ad interim just means for a period of time as compared to permanent committees that we have as the denomination. Report of the ad interim committee on divorce and remarriage. This is a lengthy, it's probably longer, as long as, or if not longer than the Murray booklet. Uh, it's about 110, 120 pages. Um, and this was from 1992. And if we get to it, I'll be quoting from this later on. Uh, I will put that on the screen. And then um, there is a report of the Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality. This was from this past year. A very good report. It's, um, it's, it can be found in the minutes of the 48th General Assembly. Minutes haven't been published yet. But if you Google it, either of these, if you just search PCA divorce, um, it's, it's like the most popular thing on uh, the, the website. <laughs> It really is. It's the most downloaded file on the website that hosts these things. It is. Um, And then you can search PCA, human sexuality. Uh, This deals with sexuality generally, but um, particularly it's dealing with homosexuality, which we're not going to touch on this morning. But it does deal with sexuality generally, and so it's it's a very helpful uh, resource for Christians. Any questions on these? Okay. Great. Well, let us uh, dive into our topic, chapter 24. We are going to start with section one, and this simply is beginning to tell us what marriage is. What marriage is? Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. So we have um, some statements here that are pretty generic for classic Christianity, Orthodox Christianity. Um, 
The, these are statements that have been believed since the beginning of time. Um, even though we see, well, now I've just stepped into Old Testament polygamy, but we won't go there. Um, but this has been the law of God since the beginning of time. Um, one man and one woman. It does assume, though, that we understand marriage, what marriage is. It assumes an understanding of the institution of marriage. And today, I think we need to do a better job of teaching and instructing what marriage is, what it was designed to be. Um, because our world, if, if we don't teach it as Christian parents, as the church, the world is telling people what marriage is and what it should be. Um, marriage is not simply a fun relationship with somebody that I like for the moment, um, but it is a lifelong partnership in an institution ordained by God. Marriage is not a social construct that society can then determine uh, what it should be, what it ought to be, what it can and can't be. But every society has recognized it because it goes beyond. It's a pre-social um, institution. It is embedded in creation uh, because God made us male and female for this purpose. It is a gift given by God to humanity for the good of our race as a whole. Um, and it is good, as we'll see later, it is good for governments to recognize this for the good of society, but the government doesn't get to determine at its core what marriage is. And of course, in our minds, we have Obergefell, we have same-sex marriage in our mind that is rampant in our culture today. And that's, the problem is the culture now is dictating what marriage ought to be uh, when we can't, that, that, that we can't go there. Um, as Christians, that can't be our definition. The mar our definition of marriage comes from God in creation, and as especially as He's revealed in His Word. So, marriage here—it's interesting that uh, it doesn't say this explicitly, but in the in the foreground is marriage is not a sacrament. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church believes marriage is a sacrament, and it bestows grace upon those who partake in that institution. It's not a sacrament, and it's not just for Christians. As we'll see later, it's for all people, uh, for all uh, believers and, and unbelievers alike. It is for the good of all people and for the good of society. Um, so so there, there's a number of things assumed in the background with marriage that... Again, I, we're not going to go there today, but this is important for us to be explicitly teaching on. What is marriage? Where do we get this idea? Because oftentimes we think of marriage as purely the end result of an emotional infatuation with somebody. And marriage can be discarded as quickly as it is picked up. And we, we must do uh, our due diligence in teaching against this and saying what marriage is and why it is this lifelong bond, why it is good that there's once, you, once you're married, you don't have to decide anymore whether you want to be with this person or not. Not. Whether you want to or not, it's the reality. You've got to deal with that reality now for the rest of your life. And that's a good thing. It's a safe place that the Lord gives us to walk together. It should be a safe place, I should say. And we'll come to that later when it's not. Um, and then we see marriages be, be between one man and one woman. Um, this is back, goes back to God's design of marriage, the design of humanity itself. This is not an arbitrary rule intended to step on people's toes, to tell them, um, to, to make them unhappy. Men and women have complementary gifts and were designed from the beginning to work together and be together. And if you don't think men and women have complementary gifts, fine, we'll just say they're complementary physically, right? You need a man and a woman to procreate. Um, and if on no other reason, there's biology that tells us that man and woman ought to be together. And this is a good thing. 
So um, we have it in our statement, uh, in our statement of faith that goes back to the 1600s that marriage is between one man and one woman. It's also in our book of church order uh, and our directory for worship. And uh, that, in that way, it protects me, PCA ministers, from being sued. Well, it doesn't protect me from being sued, but it allows me to stand on a really good ground, say, no, theologically, this is what I believe. And this goes back hundreds of years and even before the confession. This is what it always has been believed. If you were at a non-denominational church, Church, unconnected to history and these kinds of things. Uh, it's more difficult if you decide not to perform a same-sex marriage. Uh, it's, you open yourself up to more liability because you don't have the rootedness that we have in our theological tradition. So I'm thankful for this statement, uh, simply just legally as well. It makes the statement at the end of this paragraph, um, it's not lawful to have... Um, any, for a man to have more than one wife, for a woman to have more than one husband at the same time, restating what it said beforehand. Um, but in particular context, this is written, there were actually no divorce laws in England at the time. Um, and people would often um, be estranged from their spouse for many years um, and then kind of pretend like they were divorced and marry somebody else. And it was kind of a workaround to having no divorce laws. And so they're trying to cover their bases by making this statement here, saying that's not appropriate. So we'll stop there. We could maybe spend the whole time on this, um, but we'll pause for feedback, comments, and questions. So marriage is not a sacrament. So the sacraments are baptism, communion, That's it. Yep, baptism and the Lord's Supper, yes. And we'll actually have chapters dedicated just to those once we get there. The Roman Catholic Church has a system of seven sacraments, um, and we have two sacraments, and we'll, again, we'll come to those, yeah. Uh, there's a book a few years ago called, book called uh, Christian Marriage no, by Mark. The Future of Christian Marriage. The Future of Christian Marriage by Mark Rignaris. Okay. That uh, looked at Christian marriage throughout the world and looked at, <laughs> looked, looked at Christian marriage throughout the world today. Has some interesting insights, hmm. um, and about, a lot about even the definition of marriage, yeah. and how Christians in Africa and South America and Russia are understanding understanding marriage, especially young people are understanding marriage. Interesting, and it's saying that um, it's there. There's more erroneous views coming into the church today, or is it saying there there are more helpful views? One of the things that it's saying the the main. The main uh, argument is that marriage everywhere is viewed as a capstone. Mm -hmm. I establish my life, I establish my career, I establish everything. Marriage is the icing on the top Hmm. on that when I become 30 and I establish establish my established. Rather than marriage is something that I enter into as a foundation to withstand blows and tempests of life. Yeah. Will come what may. Yeah. And that is something that's universally happening throughout the Western world and Christians in general are taking that view. Right. And because that's what the world is telling us about marriage. Um, and I, I think that's where we need to, to do a better job. And I'm not doing that in this hour, uh, pushing back against that. And, and um, I think there's a lot of presumption of this that, yeah, marriage is this partnership. And we'll see in the next section why, why marriage or the purpose of marriage is of marriage. And it's not, okay, now that I've attained everything else, I not, now have time for a spouse. It's not it. This is a partner who you walk through life with forever. Um, let's go to the second section, and this section begins to unfold some of the purposes of marriage. It outlines four purposes, so we'll, we'll read this. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue, and of the church with an holy seed, 
and for preventing of uncleanness. So four reasons, uh, four purposes for marriage. And the first one is mutual help of the husband and wife. And I love this. It emphasizes right off the bat the friendship, the companionship, the care, the service, the help of both spouses uh, for the other. There's a mutual help here. This is not simply, uh, this is not an economic arrangement. This is not uh, for the sake of the husband, um, you know, gaining something. This is for mutual help. You enter in so the husband can serve the wife, for the wife so the wife can serve the husband. And there is that companionship that comes out of this and the friendship uh, that continues, that flourishes in this um, in this soil of marriage. And so I love that begin this. This is for the mutual help. And of course, this is what we see in the Garden of Eden, right? This is why um, Eve was created to be a helpmeet for the husband. And it doesn't mean she's inferior or she, you know, gets uh, the, the leftover jobs to do. No, this is what's going on here to be helpful for one another, to care for one another. Um, and so this is, uh, I love that it begins here and it goes back to the garden, of course. Second is for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue. Uh, issue is the old fashioned way of speaking of children, uh, with legitimate children. (laughs) Children are an issue, right? No, no. Um, so think of like, I issue a statement, right? I'm sending forth a statement. So this is an issue. This is something that comes forth from parents. So it has a totally different, it's not an issue like a problem. It's a totally different uh, meaning of the word. Uh, (laughs) I never thought of that. That's funny. A legitimate issue, uh, children. So, uh, so what it's getting at here is so that the world can have a clear, can have clear family relationships, that property and wealth can be passed on in an orderly way down from generation to generation so that children will be properly cared for in a well-structured home. Um, this is important. There's always been a stigma, um, uh, for, um, stigma of illegitimate children. Um, for, for many reasons, most of that is probably unhelpful and social shaming and, and shunning, which isn't um, helpful. But there's something to that, though. When, when you have an illegitimate child, they legally could not um, inherit. When you have an illegitimate child, the, the, the family dynamics are confused. Uh, we don't know where this child actually belongs. But when we have a clear set, these are two parents with children, with legitimate children, the family structure is much more solid. It's much more clear, not only to the world, but to those in it. And it is a better environment for children to grow up in. So the legitimacy of children is important to have legitimate parents that they um, descend from. Um, And then the third reason is I, I love this, and holy seed. I'm, I'm, I still, when I write, I often do this, the and before holy, just because that's how you're supposed to do it. I know nobody does anymore. Um, and holy seed. This is speaking of the covenant promises that are made to you and your offspring, to you and your children. The promises of God go from generation to generation through the family and marriage. Marriage exists for the promulgation of the church to the next generation. And so it's here pulling on that thread of the covenant promises. Um, and this is an important part of marriage for children who will be a part of the covenant community. Of course, it doesn't guarantee uh, their salvation, but this is, as Gerhard Voss has said, the workplace of recreating grace. And the Lord normally works through the church to bring children to faith. And it's a wonderful thing that children can be a part of the church. So uh, there's, there's the... Um, 
that mutual help, uh, increase of, of mankind generally with legitimate issue, and then the church particularly, particularly the covenant promises that descend through marriage to the children, and then finally, for the preventing of uncleanness. And here it's speaking of sexual immorality, sexual uncleanness. Sexual desires are good and right, and God designed them that we would desire our spouse for the other spouse's good. Sexuality is created for the marriage context for us to desire one another and for children to result. And here we're, we're getting at behind the scenes, there's a positive view of sex. And the, the Roman Catholic Church would say, um, at least in the past, would say, well, sex is kind of a necessary evil just so that you can have children. Um, but the, out of the Reformation, we said, no, no, sex is a good thing. Um, in, in addition to children, it is a good thing. And so there's mutual desire. And so um, marriage Marriage is an institution for these desires to be um, fulfilled in a sense. And I don't want to, you know, uh, you could get into a lot of, um, there's a lot of commentary on that statement I just made in social media right now. But our, our sexual desires were, were uh, designed for marriage. And it's a good thing. And, and the divines note that here, saying that it is for preventing of uncleanness, that our sexuality would not be, um, expressed outside of the marriage bond. So these are the four purposes of marriage. What reflections, comments do you have here? Are we on board with them? Does sound good? This is um, in the, the um, Westminster uh, Assembly created a, a book of worship as well. And it talks, uh, it, it goes through marriage service as well, includes what you should put in a marriage service. And these four things are in there as well. And so when I do weddings, I mention these four things. Maybe it's kind of awkward for some people to, to hear some of these things said at your wedding ceremony. But I think it's important to remind us why, some of the, some of the purposes why we have marriage. Yeah, it, it, it didn't come in on uh, Christ and it's private. Yeah, so we have Paul taking marriage and saying, look, this is a picture of Christ and his church, and marriage ought to reflect that. And I think what they're doing um, here is, ba- is more going to, um, you know, they, they could have and maybe should have said something to that goal. I think they're thinking more um, from a cultural perspective, and they do bring in the church as well here. Um, but they do, I think they're more talking from like a creational standpoint. Why is this good in general for all people? Again, they do pull on the, the, the covenant uh, thread, but they, they could have uh, brought that in. And that is an important point and part of marriage for sure. Yeah. One thing that I, that I think about too is that it's uh, provisional. Right. It's provisional. Right. It's not brought in the kingdom. It does not usher in the kingdom of God. That's right. It's, it is really secondary eschatologically mm-hmm. to the church of God. That's right. That's right. And um, we see Jesus even saying, look, in the new heavens, new earth, uh, there's not going to be marriage. And that kind of makes us sad sometimes to say, oh, what, what is my relationship with my spouse going to be like um, in, in heaven? And um, who knows what that's going to look like? Uh, yeah. Pastor, in church in Florida, PCA Church, he said the way he looks at it is he will not love his wife that's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and we're even going to love our spouses more than we can now, right? There'll be even a perfection of that love then. And that's right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where I do think it's helpful to take 
um, the marriage relationship as that Christ and Christ and church metaphor, where we see the greatest love that we can imagine is with Christ bestowing that upon us as his people. And so all of this is, is pointing us towards that end. Um, so that's, that's helpful. That's good. Let's go to section three. Um, who may marry and to whom may they be married? Um, we're getting into some technical things here. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, um, but it's important to read. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry. Pause. This is saying Christians and non-Christians. This is not just for Christians. They're explicitly explicit here. All sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. So here it says judgment and consent are required. Um, those who are too young or incapacitated are not able to make good judgment and they may not marry. Uh, they are not able to consent to marriage. Uh, what they're saying here also is you may not have arranged marriages where the people being married do not consent to that marriage. Um, arranged marriages can happen as long as the, the, the bride and groom consent to the marriage, but we can't have forced marriages. Uh, that, that goes against the design of marriage. So I appreciate that they, that they put this in here. Um, so you have to be able to give judgment and, or to, uh, you must have judgment and the ability to give consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. Pause there. Christians may marry, may only marry other Christians. Uh, and this is a theme all, through all of scripture. We see in the Old, Old Testament that Israel was marrying outside the covenant community and the downfall that brought spiritually, right? This is for the spiritual well-being of the church and of your own soul. Do not marry outside of the covenant community because it could be your downfall. There's all kinds of warnings uh, that Old Testament Israelite, uh, non-Israelite spouses would lead the people of God um, astray. And of course, it did over and over and over. And we have the same command in the New Testament um, to do not be unequally yoked. And at the very least, that means do not marry those who are outside of the covenant community. Um, and so, it, and, and they uh, describe some specifics here in the next sentence. And therefore, such as profess the true reformed religion. So saying specifically, okay, you reform people, what should you, who should you not marry? You should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. Yes, that's right. Um, strong words, strong words. Um, but what they're saying is, again, Christians should not marry with non-Christians. And it says specifically, uh, talks about infidels, uh, probably talking there um, in, their, in their primary context, probably um, pagans, atheists, and Muslims, who they had in mind, papists, Roman Catholics, um, or those who sympathize even politically. There's some political undertones to this as well. Those who sympathize with, um, with Roman Catholics politically. Um, where I'm, I've lost my place, idolaters, so all non-Christians. And it goes particularly saying, don't be unequally yoked. And so even if some people claim to be Christians, you should not be uh, married to them. And it names the uh, notorious sinner and those who believe damnable heresies. So damnable heresies, if you believe that, the church would say you're not a believer. That's what damnable heresy means. Um, but even if they claim to be Christians and they are uh, not, not Trinitarian, uh, this is saying you should not marry them. You may not marry them. Um, 
those who are notoriously wicked uh, do not marry them. And I think there's, there's other practical considerations here um, as we think today. So here in England, everybody, when, when the, the Church of England became Reformed, um, everybody, every Christian was presumed to be Reformed. And you would just go along with your church, okay, we're no longer uh, Anglican, we're now Presbyterian, which only happened very, for a very short matter of time, or amount of time, but we're no longer Roman Catholic, we're now Anglican, which was rather Reformed in and of itself. And so what everybody assumed is that everybody in the church was therefore Anglican, and uh, everybody believed the same thing. Um, but today, it's a little bit different because we now have free churches in America. Everybody can affiliate with their own church that they believe that they agree the most with. And, and so we, I think there are particular applications today that we must think through. And that question is, how much theological disagreement may I have with somebody before we get married? And this is an important question, something we need to think about as we uh, think about marriage if we're not yet married or if we think about counseling others who are who are to be married. Um, I think it's important to think about matters of soteriology. How are we saved? Are you Calvinist or are you Arminian? I think these are important issues. These aren't, these don't, uh, I don't think you can, I don't think I can say you, a Calvinist may not marry an Arminian, but you need to be careful and think about this because there are a lot of implications from that. Or um, charismatic gifts, um, if people have differing views on this. Um, baptism, differing views on baptism. Um, these can have real practical, um, on-the-ground uh, differences with how individuals um, uh, practice their faith. And it can lead to serious problems in marriage. And so I would just counsel to be very careful. And some of this is, how loosely do you hold this? Or how, how strongly do you hold this? Some people might say, I don't know, baptism is not a big deal to me. If my husband wants to baptize our children, great, that's fine. Um, and maybe they can be married. But if somebody says, no, no, I will not baptize my children. And then the other one says, no, I must baptize my children. I think you need to think about that before you get married um, because that will lead to conflict later, clearly. Um, so who may marry and to whom sets up a framework. Uh, let's go to section four. And this is very easy. Section four, no in incest. It's easy, right? Uh, marriage ought not be within degrees of song, uh, consanguinity or affinity forbidden by the word, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or con consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. So incestuous marriages are not appropriate. Okay, that's easy. Yeah, it's been, um, today, uh, we aren't in such a family-oriented world and society where family stuck together and you, you married only people that you knew well as a family. And so there, what was really going on here was a debate whether can you, can you marry first cousins or not. Um, and that's no longer in our confession. We just say whatever is... Um, whatever uh, affinity is forbidden by the word. Um, so whatever scripture forbids, we don't do. Um, can you marry a first cousin or is it only second cousins that you can marry? So that, that's really the debate that's going on at the yeah, time. Yes, oh. nobody believes sister brother, but it's what, to what degree must you be unrelated to the person um, in order to marry them? That's right, biological link. And, and, and so this was a poke at the king because they had incestuous relationships. That's why it's there in this, um, because the king had had several wives and one of them was incestuous. So are you saying they were teaching in um, the confessions that first cousins 
You could marry first cousins. Yeah, yeah, that was the original text, but when it got to um, Parliament, they actually um, cut it out. Parliament did not let that go through, um, and so they did not. So Parliament said, no, it's only second cousins you can marry, whereas the divine said you can marry first cousins. I don't know the debate. I don't know the history. I'll just leave it there. I don't... <laughs> oh, man. All right, Nate. This, like, random tip. Yes. It was. It was. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And Nate's dad wrote a fantastic chapter on this in his book on the history of the confession. So there we go. Um, it's probably the longest subchapter in the whole book because this was such an important political issue at the time. It was explosive. Um, for us, like, well, duh, but it was explosive. Uh, one, one last comment. So I have a, I don't mean to be controversial, but so I have a, a small comment that I think is important to make a question. So, well, let me start with a question first. Um, do you think incest, as defined here, it is part of the moral law? Or do you think it is more of a civil law that we ought to take in equity? So I think this flows from the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, which has in view a view of marriage and family that it's upholding by saying do not commit adultery. It's saying this family is, uh, is I don't want to use sacred um, because it's for all people, but this family unit, the husband and wife, is an incredibly important institution. There's an entire commandment given just to that. And so what I would say around, around um, your, your answer um, incest is primarily wrong because it destroys family relationships. It destroys the natural order of things and how things ought to be. And now, I don't know if you're driving at this, but then you're saying, well, how did we have children after Adam and Eve? Did their, hus- did their, did their brothers and sisters, is that where you're going? Well, my, my question is this, and more of you take it here. So, clearly, if God made Adam and Eve, their children had to marry their sisters. That's right. That's right. Right? Then... Eventually, God gave, uh, then things happened, bad right. things happened, and then you have uh, Noah and their children mm-hmm. who had their wives. That's right. They already had wives. They had their sisters, yep. and they had to marry them on themselves So there's uh-huh. a degree of necessity that you see. Right. And then the law, the, the law, the Levitical law was given at the time of Moses. Mm-hmm. We know that Moses married her first cousin and so forth, and half-sister. Right. Um, so, so there, there's some degree of necessity. So, if you're saying, well, this was a part of a moral law, right? Then clearly, Adam and Eve and their their children, and, and Noah, they should have sinned before God. Right. Right. And so, so yeah. if you take, let me finish. Up. Mm-hmm. So, if you take this as more of a civil law, in 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 sense that okay, God did this because clearly, biologically, it is not good to marry consanguinity, right? You 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 promote genetic malformations mm-hmm. uh, clearly right and it's just self-destructive to the family even from a biological perspective right. not to mention whatever other psychological thing then I wonder if you take into today's world those communities that are Christian and they are endogamous 
like for example the Amish community. Right. The, the right. degree of, of mutations and, and, and genetic malformations is sky high. Right. Because right. they marry among themselves. That's right. So you would say, well in that context, maybe you should not even marry among them. Maybe you should just go to a different community or two. Right. Right. Because of I extend an equity oh. of the law. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. my my question was a point about is this only limit the first cousins, or really should we understand you know the spirit of the of the of the of the demand not to marry in consanguinity right. out of protection yes. should be extended in some areas. Right. So be narrow in the areas where you just won't have anybody else. So scripture does not say thou shalt not marry your, um, your cousin. It doesn't say thou shalt not marry your sister. It doesn't say that. Um, it does under the, under the Levitical law. Um, that's a ceremonial law. But it says, it, so back to my kind of a, a few minutes ago, what I was saying, this is wrong and contrary to God's law um, to do this today because it's destroying the family unit, because it is contrary to this, uh, this system that God has set up for families to thrive and flourish. Whenever you get into, um, in, into incestuous relationships, it's destroying people's lives because it's destroying the family unit. Um, now we get into the bio- biological aspect, and I would say that's more of a sixth commandment issue. When we understand the biology, we're actually harming other people by, by, by you know, Amish communities, um, those sorts of things. Um, we're harming other people's lives by not allowing our gene pool to expand by narrowing it every generation. Um, and so I, I, so the, the, the same prohibition is there, but there's different reasons. And I think it was appropriate and morally appropriate for Adam and Eve's children to marry one another at that time because it was not destroying the family relationship in the same way it does today um, because that was the only option. And they, the whole world was a single family and it wasn't destroying them in the same way it would today. Um, maybe that's a cop-out trying to justify them, but um, that's, that's how I've understood it. And biologically, and biologically that's right. That's right. Yeah, they, they would have not had the same issues genetically as we do now, many, many generations later. Um, let's move to uh, section five and six. And we are now dealing with the murky waters of divorce. Um, and uh, the diff- I don't want to say murky, difficult waters of divorce and grounds for divorce. And um, I will, I'm just as a preface, sections five and six out- lay out two grounds for divorce and um, technically that may not be correct, but there's two reasons that give rise to divorce. I'll say that. Um, and the first is adultery, and that's what section five is saying. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve the contract. We're talking here about a contract to marry. Um, Previously, uh, engagements were seen in a more formal sense than they are now. So that's what they're speaking of, is a contractual engagement. Uh, You can break off that contract if there is adultery or fornication. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce. And after the divorce, to marry another, as if the offending party were dead. So adultery. And now the question, of course, is what does adultery mean? And we see the footnotes. We're going back to uh, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Jesus speaking of uh, grounds for divorce, and he speaks of sexual immorality, sometimes translated fornication or adultery. Um, the Greek word porneia. So the question is, what does porneia mean when Jesus says it there? And our study committee report of the PCA, I'm not going to read all of this that I'm putting on here, but look at this last, this last line. 
What is adultery? And this is what the study report said. Um, the study report is not binding on anybody in the PCA. It was merely advice given, but I think it's, I think it's uh, wise advice. The guiding principle should be whether the sexual sin does indeed break the one flesh relationship. Some sexual sins may hurt the marriage union without necessarily breaking it. But when that sexual sin becomes externalized in such a way that it becomes a substitute for the one flesh relation with one spouse, then the session may judge it as being the equivalent of pornea. If you come back up here, these are things that uh, one act, one one of these things is enough to sever that one flesh relationship. Adultery, homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, and incest. Um, and then it goes down here to other things that are more difficult. Um, pornography, um, masturbation. Um, is, does one act of this become grounds for divorce? And they would say, no, we don't believe so. But when it is this ongoing, um, uh, ongoing sin, breaking the one flesh relationship, then it is grounds for divorce. Okay, I don't want to talk about this. Um, <laughs> I want to get to the next one um, because this is a judgment. Uh, Mark wants to talk about it afterwards. Um, this is this is a judgment call for those who uh, for the leaders, uh, the spiritual leaders, the the elders. If it's a member of a local congregation, or if it's uh, or the presbytery, if it's a, a minister, um, and these are very very difficult. These marriage situations are uh, universally um, uh, uh, considered the most difficult pastoral issues in the church. Um, and so this, is, uh, so this is adultery. If one person commits adultery, then the other uh, may divorce them. They may. They're not required to, but they may. Okay, I'm not going to talk about it. Let's go to section six. Um, I know, right? Uh, this one's even more difficult, okay? If you want to talk about something, I'm trying to leave a few minutes here to talk about this one. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage. Pause. There's a lot of people who justify divorce and we don't like it. That's not good. There's a lot of people who make up every reason for divorce. The Pharisees were doing it in Jesus' day. The Jews were doing it for years, for, for hundreds of years before. Christians have been doing it forever, right? Finding reasons for divorce. They say that's not good. We're, we're, we're apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder that uh, those whom God hath joined together. Stop it. Yet, nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. So the, here it lists these two reasons that can give rise to divorce. Adultery that it dealt with in this previous section. And here, willful desertion. Willful desertion. But it's a willful desertion that can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate. Okay, what do we do with this? Um, this is a reference. This comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 15, and I'll read part of it here. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Uh, verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, that's the key word, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So Paul's setting up this uh, issue that was in the Corinthian church. One spouse was a Christian. Another spouse was, an uh, was, an, was a non-believer. So the question is, may they divorce? And Paul says, no. 
Um, usually this would happen by uh, one, one spouse being converted. Uh, maybe they did enter a, a, an unequally yoked marriage to begin with. This is probably one person being um, converted and they're left with an unbelieving spouse. And the question is, well, can I now divorce my spouse? Paul says, no, you do not desert. You do not divorce your spouse who's an unbeliever unless this person separates from you. And this word separates here is a word that is, that means divorce. It's, it says you cannot divorce them unless this person divorces you. Then you're free and you can go on your way. Separate. Um, we've used this word separate now to, to see, uh, well, the, the, the confession uses willful desertion uh, as an interpretation of this word separate. And so we've seen this, uh, some people see this as a physical desertion, physically leaving this person, physically separating. That's not what, what Paul's saying. Paul's saying with, if this person divorces you, right? But point is well taken. I think this, uh, there's a de facto divorce that happens with this physical desertion, this physical separation, this refusing to acknowledge the other person as a spouse. That's a de facto separation divorce. And therefore the, the spouse remaining is able to pursue a divorce, seeing that the other spouse had de facto divorced them already. You follow that? Does that make sense? Okay. So this gets difficult. Okay. Yeah. Ernie. So, so are you talking about physical separation is important or other kinds of We'll get there. We'll get there. So um, the, clear, the cleanest case is when there's a physical separation, which you're speaking of, physical walking away and saying and renouncing the marriage. That's clean. That's, that's very clearly the next step after what um, 1 Corinthians 7 is speaking of. Um, that's easy. Um, easy. It's not easy for anybody. Um, but to make the judgment of this is a lawful divorce because the other spouse is physically left. They're not supporting. They renounce the marriage. They say, I'm done with you. I have a, have a good life. Um, then the other person can, um, can pursue, file legal divorce because the other person has de facto divorced them already. Um, so the question is, Ernie's, to Ernie's point, okay, how far do we travel down that trail? Physical desertion is one thing. What about uh, physical abuse, even though there's not physical desertion? What about emotional abuse? What about, I just don't like them anymore? What about how far down this road do we go and say it, it amounts to a de facto divorce? A, um, a, uh, a, a, um, um, a renunciation of the marriage, if not by words, by actions, leaving then the innocent party to, uh, to seek a legal divorce. Lots, this is a really difficult issue. I'm going to simply read from our, uh, our study report that came out of 1992 from our, our General Assembly. Again, this is not binding, but I think it's a very helpful framework. Um, so just bear with me for a minute as we walk through this. Are there other forms of separation today that may be considered equivalent to this leaving of the marriage of which Paul speaks? Specifically, what about cases of habitual physical abuse? Has that person deserted his spouse to the extent that we may label it de facto divorce? We must be careful not to open the floodgates of excuses. And later on, they, they talk about some of these uh, excuses that are inappropriate. Irreconcilable differences, emotional separation, loss of affection. Those are not appropriate grounds for divorce. Back up to the first paragraph. On the other hand, we need to recognize the reality of the separation. We should allow Sessions the liberty to discern with much prayer what would be the proper response in particular, circum in particular circumstances. Desertion, 
can occur as well by the imposition of intolerable conditions as by departure itself. So the study committee is saying it's not mere physical departure. There are other things that can amount to this desertion, neglect, de facto divorce. Next paragraph. It seems to us that those reformed authorities are correct who have argued that sins which are tantamount in extremity and consequence to actual desertion should be understood to produce similar eventualities. Next paragraph, a husband's violence, particularly to the degree that it endangers his wife's safety, if unremedied, seems to us by any application of biblical norms to be as much a ruination of the marriage, in fact, as adultery or actual departure. We are quick to add, however, that the list of sins tantamount to desertion cannot be very long. To qualify, a sin must have the same extreme effect as someone's physical abandonment of a spouse. I think those are good words, wise words, but they don't give us much specificity. And that's why these are so difficult, so heart-wrenching when these cases arise, and they do arise. Um, And so um, I don't know what to say. I don't want to go into particulars. Um, Don't, so here's, I'll open up for questions. Don't ask, is this, does this amount to uh, desertion. I'm not going to answer that here, um, but other other questions that you want to raise. One, two. Uh, I think there was uh, Old Testament law talking about a husband needing to provide provide a second wife, an unloved wife, with clothing and with having bearing children and having having some things. And I think there's old there's Jewish tradition mm-hmm. that I, Jesus doesn't explicitly right. talk to. But it was in the milieu of what what husband needed to provide. Right, right. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I'm not going to say is this, but can I say would this be considered? I'm not going to give me an answer, but I'm saying would this be something considered if a husband refuses to leave, but refuses to work, refuses to do any of his responsibilities at all over a long period of time? Is that desertion? Like, yeah, yeah. So the question is, if a, if a husband, you just did what I asked you not to do. Um, so, right. Yeah, would it be considered, not as a grounds, would it be considered if a husband refuses to work, doesn't physically leave, refuses to work for a long period of time, um, and there is disagreement on that? I would say, in my view, yes. But I know there's disagreement on that point. Um, I, let, let me just say one more thing, Rob. Um, Maybe we'll come back to you, maybe not. I'm sorry. I want to read the last section of paragraph five. A public and orderly course of, or section six, a public and orderly course of proceedings is to be observed and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. So in other words, you need to be careful before you decide in your own case whether I have grounds for divorce or not. We need to have an orderly proceeding. And it's nice back in the day, you had the civil courts to help you out. Here, we don't have civil courts to help us out because the civil courts say anybody can divorce anytime they want. So now it's left purely, entirely up to the church to figure this out. And frankly, most people don't care what the church says and they do whatever they want anyway. But this puts an onus upon every individual. Do not make this determination on your own. Seek the authorities. And, you know, civil authorities aren't going to do anything. So come to your elders. Talk to your elders. Work this through before you yourself decide, hey, I'm done. Let's, let's work together on this and have an orderly proceeding to understand what's going on before we make a judgment and a decision. Um, I'm going to pray and close on that note. And then, sorry, Rob, I cut you off. Um, We can talk later. Lord, uh, these are difficult things. And we ask that you would fill us with wisdom as we consider uh, marriage and divorce, as we seek to be faithful if we're married to our spouses. And uh, if not, you would help us be faithful in thinking about marriage 
um, and pursuing a holy, uh, holy life. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and ask that you would prepare us now to enter your presence with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.